Nicolas Cage, good or bad? A challenge, certainly, but not insolvable because all actors have distinct values, which I use to find answers. Abed, how much Nicolas Cage did you get? Enough! I watched enough to find the answers because this, this is my reality. This is how I learned to be, and my being doesn't allow for Nicholas freaking Cage, okay? Oh, yeah! Oh, yeah! Oh! Oh! Oh, I'm a cat. I'm a sexy cat. That was brilliant. The name of the podcast is What's in the Box. My name is Graham Bryant. And Donnie, I'm going to need a little lowrider for this one. And who do I have with me here today? I'm Amber Woodward, and I can't do a Nick Cage impression. <clears throat> and this is a podcast that has absolutely no affiliation with Letterboxd, but we're big fans of using it. And we are covering a list that delves into the lowrider himself, the man who sold his soul to the devil through Dave Chappelle's corpse out of a plane, has been set on fire regularly, fought Nazis and drank egg creams, chainsaw dueled a Christian hippie, has a kinship with moles, never misfiled anything, and stole the Declaration of Independence. Today we are covering the list, Nicolas Cage, Good or Bad, created by Letterboxd user Caitlin. He wanted to do a deep dive into the actor's career ahead of the release of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, and I think it's been a really interesting and fun time, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Very enlightening. As we get started, what is your overall history with the actor known as Nicolas Cage? So I was racking my brain uh, Mm. as we were coming up with the outline for today, and trying to figure out what movies I'd seen Nick Cage in prior to our deep dive. Mm -hmm. National Treasure, obviously, multiple times. Uh, Anyone who didn't watch that movie as a child was severely deprived in their movie media. Mm -hmm. And I also remember watching The Rock, where he uh, is, like, on Alcatraz, and I'm pretty sure Sean Penn is there. Oh, Or maybe it's Sean Connery. Oh, no, it's definitely Sean Connery. That's my bad. Uh, Sorry, Sean Penn. Um, I get Sean Connery confused with Pierce Brosnan just because I don't watch James Bond at all. And so that's been my hang-up. So I think those are the only two movies I'd ever seen him in. Yeah, I have not ever seen The Rock. But I think my first time with Nicolas Cage was also National Treasure. We owned that on DVD. I had the sequel to National Treasure as a PSP movie that came on the little UMDs that you would put in. I think that's the only movie I ever owned (laughs) for the PlayStation Portable. And then I remember one time when I was on an airplane, they announced that the title they were showing was the movie Next, where Nicolas Cage is a man who can see what happens next. 
And I said, okay, could you buy me those weird headphones that have the two jacks so that I can watch next? And it was okay by my memory. (laughs) Um, I think I enjoyed it just fine and was at least invested. It was a good airplane movie. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so, yeah, that was what I can remember of Nick Cage before I knew about any memory of him, memeage of him. Mm Mm-hmm. And the stigma around the actor himself, I I wasn't acutely aware. I think what people think of Nicolas Cage today, I was more familiar with kind of Jim Carrey Mm -hmm. or that kind of loudness, which for some reason his was accepted. Uh, Nicolas Cage's was more of a mystery to the public. Yeah. Mm. So... Today's list, we wanted to focus mostly on whether, the, as the title of the list suggested, it's based off of a episode of Community where they have a course on whether Nicolas Cage is a good or bad actor, and one of the characters goes insane trying to figure out whether he is on the good or bad side of the spectrum of acting. So today's focus is mostly going to be on whether or not Nicolas Cage is a good actor or not, what we have ultimately decided based on our deep dive. And to get things started with today's subject matter, we decided we were going to play a game of Nicolas Cage trivia with each other, asking questions back and forth just to see if we can trip each other up and kind of set the scene of this man's life if you have no familiarity with him whatsoever. So, Amber, would you like to do the first question? All right, I'll start off with a low ball, a kind of easy one. Yes, okay. All right, how many times has Nicolas Cage been married? I believe he's been married twice. Oh, no, it is five. Oh! Five times! Damn it, I knew that at some point. One of the marriages was only four days long, got it annulled. (laughs) Another one of them was only 104 days long, and that was uh, to Lisa Marie Presley, actually. So it's rumored that he is one of the few people who is allowed to go upstairs in Elvis Presley's house. Oh my god, I've never actually heard that before while I was doing my research, so that's a lot of fun. Okay, I'll go. What superhero role has Nicolas Cage tried to land for decades? Oh my gosh, I know this. I think it's Superman? It is Superman. Hey! He was slated to be in a Tim Burton-directed production titled Superman Lives, where he was going to play the main character. It ultimately got scrapped. His agents and I think his management have tried to have him land the role for years, he has a son named Kal-El, which is mm, Superman's right. real name. And people have surmised that, oh, is that because of Superman? And I believe it's actually because it's a Hebrew name. And that's why he had the fascination with it. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So this is a little bit of a tricky one. Mm. This might require some critical thinking. All right. Um, you know how Wikipedia has the at the top of articles sometimes not to be confused with? Yeah. All right. So what other famous figures does Wikipedia think you might have confused with Nicolas Cage? Uh, I have no idea. Uh, one of them is Nick Gage, who is a journalist from Greece. No, I would not have ever gotten uh, <laughs> One of them is Nick Cave, the singer. Oh, that makes total sense. Because so, I actually do like Nick Cave. Wikipedia knows 
that you might have gotten confused because rhyming is difficult. I I would not have gotten that confused <laughs> because I know who Nick Cave is, but yeah, that's funny. Alrighty. What was Nicolas Cage looking for when he bought a property in Rhode Island? What was he looking for? Mm-hmm. Um, man, I don't know. Bigfoot. No, he actually thought that the Holy Grail might have been in Rhode serious? Island. And so his quest for the Holy Grail, mi- mirroring national treasure itself, oh my brought him to Rhode Island and he said he had never found it. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm really sad for him. That's a bummer. (laughs) What is the Nicolas Cage subreddit called? Oh my god. Um, This is great. This is an amazing piece of information. Is it Cage Match? No. Damn it. It's called r slash one true god. No, I would never have gotten (laughs) that. That's insane, and I bet he hates that so much. (laughs) I love it. It's an incredible (laughs) name. Alrighty. In what movie did Nicolas Cage have an ancient Egyptian artifact sewn into his costume's jacket so he could channel ancient evil into his performance? What? Yes. Ancient evil? This is not a trick question. This this is really something that he's done. Have I seen this movie? Probably not. Uh, it's not oh no. an obscure role of his, though. Um... I don't know, Ghost Rider. It actually was Ghost Rider's Spirit of Vengeance. Oh! That he um, had a small green sarcophagus that looked kind of like King Tut's that he had sewn into his jacket so that he could trick himself into believing he was channeling this sort of demonic power into his performance. Interesting. Uh, Do you have anything else you want to ask? Okay, I have one more. Sure. I have one more. So, famously... Nick Cage bought a dinosaur skull. He did. Two questions about this dinosaur skull. Yes. How much did it cost? I believe 286000 All right. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, the skull was revealed to be stolen. Where did it come from? I have no idea. I didn't hear that part. I knew it was like Tyrannosaurus, Batar, something like that. But mm-hmm. where, where was it stolen from? Mongolia. Oh. So he actually returned it. Oh, nice of him. Gave it back to the government. <laughs> I, I think I knew that at one point, And um, it must have completely slipped my mind with <laughs> just diving into all of this batshit information. Yeah, so uh, as you can tell, Nick Cage has had... Quite the life. Yes, absolutely he did. Um, Some outrageous purchases, uh, which he's pretty well known for. I've got one for you. Oh. Yes. Do you know what pet he spent $80,000 on? Oh, uh, mm, an anaconda. Close. Oh. It was a two-headed cobra. Oh my gosh. That, because the night before, (laughs) the night before he dreamt of a two-headed eagle, and then the next day, somebody called him asking if they wanted to uh, pay if he wanted to pay eighty thousand dollars for a two-headed cobra, and he immediately said yes. Obviously. <laughs> and apparently, in order to feed it, he had to put a spatula between the two heads <gasps> so that fighting? they didn't fight over oh, the no! same food. <laughs> and so he eventually had to give it away to a zoo um, because he just couldn't take care of it. Rough. <laughs> That's rough. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Oh, uh, Nick Cage is pretty famous for his 
kind of outlandish purchases, mm-hmm. including a two-headed cobra and a <laughs> dinosaur skull, as well as uh, a lot of properties. Like Rhode Island, looking like for the Like Rhode Holy Island. <laughs> uh, another one is the LaLaurie Mansion in, I think, New Orleans, mm-hmm. that is supposed to be one of the most haunted houses in all of America. Oh my god. I understand that today you have done some research on Nicolas Cage as a person. We've already done the trivia, but you have some more concrete information about his beginnings and kind of his upbringing and some parts about his career. Absolutely. I am, I guess, the research queen, just so we are all aware. That is not disputed by anyone. (laughs) All right, so Nicholas Kim Coppola, born January 7th, 1964 in Long Beach, California, is related to Francis Ford Coppola, uh, the director. (laughs) What a sincere... (laughs) <laughs> what a sincere whoa. Acting. <laughs> I, I, I'm very well aware that he's right. uh, a nepotism. Well, not a nepotism uh, actor, but definitely had ties into the yeah, film industry. He's, he's related to a lot of famous Coppolas. Um, cousin of Sofia Coppola. Oh. Uh, director of Marie Antoinette, which is one of my faves. I still need to watch um, And, of course, Francis Ford Coppola, like I said. Nick Cage uh, obviously took his name from the superhero Luke Cage. Yes. Uh, comics. Sweet Christmas. He's very, very into comics. But the thing that inspired him to get into acting was James Dean. Oh. Uh, he cites Rebel Without a Cause as being the movie that uh, he saw and said, I want to do that for a living. Family was not sure that he was really going to go far in it. They were not. Uh, hmm. super active in embracing it at first, despite the fact that, you know, he has tons of family in the movie industry. Right. But uh, his acting debut was in 1981, which was a TV pilot that didn't get picked up. Oh. So I don't know if that's out there anywhere. I don't know if people can watch that. Clearly, he didn't stay under the radar for long because he uh, was in famously two of his greatest performances, Raising Arizona and Moonstruck, in which he was nominated for a Golden Globe. The most prestigious award. (laughs) Right. For best actor in a comedy. Um, I also believe he was in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, right? As one of the extras, Mm -hmm. as like one of the sidekick characters or something like that. Right. Yeah. He. Was in a few small roles and really built his way up pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been nominated for two Academy Awards. Oh, wow. I take for, it back. That's yeah, way better. For leaving Las <laughs> Vegas and Adaptation. Um, neither of which we watched for today. Not this unfortunately. time. No. No, um, not on the m- more sincere right. side of his acting, <laughs> sadly. Don't know why. <laughs> he also made his directing debut in 2002 with a movie called Sunny. Nick Cage is also very well known for his money. And there's two things here. Okay. Uh, One is for his charitable activities. Um, So he donates a lot of money to, like, victims of Hurricane Katrina. Oh. Uh, He donates a lot of money to, like, UNICEF. He's been named a UN ambassador for global justice twice. What the hell? Yeah. This never came up in, like, stuff that I was, like, reading. Yeah. He is a very charitable guy. 
Uh, and then... And is that, is that the extent of what he's known for with his money? Or Unfortunately, no. <laughs> so, some of his money goes to some great causes, and then, you know, some of it, as any good American would do, mm-hmm. spends his money on the most batshit of things. Mm-hmm. Um, he has had some financial issues. He bought and sold lots of expensive properties and made some risky real estate speculation. Mm -hmm. These have included, like we said, the LaLaurie Mansion, Mm -hmm. that property in Rhode Island. He has bought some islands, you know, just little things like that. T-Rex skulls, (laughs) double-headed cobras. But in any case, he ended up getting into a lot of debt, which is one of the things he's known for. One of the things he ended up doing was taking a lot of roles, a lot of VOD roles especially, Mm. but he asserts he never phoned it in, even though he was taking some kind of low quality stuff. He asserts that he's proud of every single one of his roles. Right. He, because the most, I think one of the most popular rumors about Nicolas Cage as an actor is that he doesn't turn down roles at all. And that's why he's been, I think he's had a self-ascribed goal that he wants to be in... 150 films over the span of his mm. career and he's mm-hmm. somewhere around 90 right now i believe so get, getting close so yeah that period of his career where he was in a lot of things that were kind of questionable mm-hmm. um you know kind of like the ghost writer era of <laughs> nick cage was the best era of nick cage. <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> was paying off debt Um, which is why he kind of fell under the radar for a while. Mm -hmm. But now that he is debt-free, he is back and better than ever. Not Mm -hmm. that he went anywhere. Not that he went anywhere. And is allowed to be a little bit more selective in his roles nowadays. Which I think is what he wanted to get back to when he got famous with roles such as like in Birdie or Raising Arizona. Mm -hmm. And he wants to get back to that sort of indie kind of feel for an actor. Which I think he's done a really good job of. So far, yeah, Yeah. and we'll get into that. So the other thing, of course, that he is known (laughs) for is his pretty divisive acting style. Right. And Graham has some things to tell us about that. So I graduated with a BFA in theater performance and took a bunch of acting classes and kind of went through the American obsession with acting and theater history and so I dusted off a few textbooks and did a few internet searches in order to give a base of evaluating whether Nick Cage is a good or a bad actor we have to have some understanding of what acting is and where it came from Mm -hmm. and what that's been like speeding through a lot of it We have styles such as kabuki in Japan. We have uh, rasa aesthetics acting, which came from India. And we have, of course, the classical kind of acting, which people would associate with Shakespeare or even like as far back as to ancient Greece, Mm. where in order to be a good actor, you had to have a lot of physicality and a loud voice. And the idea more or less was if you could do the pose, then you were a good actor. People would study certain poses or ways of holding themselves, and that was focused on evoking a certain reaction from the audience. If you could get the reaction from the audience, then you did your job well. Eventually, as people were wanting to find more certain ways of theory and of understanding uh, the nature of the world, 
there was a French philosopher named Denis Diderot who surmised that there was a paradox of the actor, which was in order to move the audience, the actor himself has to remain unmoved mm. in order to... How, how do you mechanically do something that requires so much emotion out of an audience, and yet you have to be able to reproduce it on a dime over and over and over again. Oh, I love a good paradox. Enter Konstantin Stanislavski, who is known as the Russian granddaddy of acting. This is the guy that everyone talks about uh, from now towards the late 19th century. He wrote the text called An Actor's Work. This is the theater kid's Bible. It's basically... <laughs> A manual on how to act but instead of it being instructions it's all told from the perspective of a student who is learning how to act and writing in his journal and failing and discovering the better ways to act over the common amateur rookie mistakes that every actor makes mm. so that's a fun way that he experimented with instructing his students was writing the journey of a student he also wrote An Actor Prepares, which so many people have on their shelves. He wanted to find a way to establish a concrete method that actors used in order to be able to reproduce emotions or to effectively recreate a performance every night while still having the conditions to be inspired and find moments of spontaneity at any given moment so he described it as how to create favorable conditions for the appearance of inspiration by means of the will he didn't want you to go in blind he just wanted you to have the best circumstances possible in order to find it this became very popular with the advent of 19th century psychological theories such as freud and people were being more concerned of what makes a person the way that they are, how do emotions work, how do they affect the psyche. Suddenly actors were becoming much more introspective and were focused not on what they could do to affect the audience, but rather what could they do to affect themselves in order to deliver a genuine performance. Every acting teacher of today describes this as behaving truthfully under imaginary circumstances. Stanislavski himself was infatuated with a method known as effective memory. What this basically meant was in order to get into the mind of a character, you had to understand the character's given circumstances and then plug yourself into those circumstances in order to evoke the emotion needed of the character in that given moment. So you start with the character's beginnings, you go through their entire life, you put yourself into the world of the character and are able to create a, re a reality around that character, and then you have to connect those circumstances into a given scene in order to deliver the emotion necessary for that scene and externalize it. After the 1930s, he was more so focused on physicality and how that would affect emotionality. Most of his research over the course of his life was creating a process designed for the constant renewal of the actor through the renewal of the method itself, which we're going to get into. Other students that worked under Stanislavski would be in America and teach these methods to their students, such as Stella Adler or, mm. or Meisner. But we don't have time for all of that because we are going to be talking about the method, 
which was popularized by an American teacher known as Lee Strasberg. He was with the Actors Studio in New York City in the 1930s. He curated a specific body of Stanislavski's teachings in order to impress upon a burgeoning industry of film actors in the 1930s. If anyone has seen Singing in the Rain, they know exactly what I'm talking about. Suddenly, expressionist, like, big physicality wasn't working anymore because now we could hear things on sound and we have this more intimate medium. Mm. So we had to focus on a way that was more uh, introspective and more subtle that moved towards the style of naturalism, of having a person behave naturally and not over the top. So Strasbourg had a huge fetish on emotional recall, which is similar to effective memory, but it was basically focused on bringing the actor to the character rather than the idea of what a character should be. So the actor themselves would have to draw on their own memories and their own emotional experience in order to factor into the performance of a character in any given scene. So this is the kind of thing where you're like, think of a really sad day and that's what you're going to use to give your character emotion. Right. It's similar to, it, we're, we're going to get into that because it's very disputed and it's very divisive, mm. but... Basically, he, he advocated for emotional recall so that every performance could be unique. The way that I would play Hamlet is different from the way that you would play Hamlet. No okay. two actors can deliver the same performance if they bring themselves into that character. And it advocates for the, the identity of the actor themselves being crucial to a character's portrayal. So this is, in my opinion, great for film and terrible for the stage. Because with a film, you can draw on all that experience, do a few takes on the day, and be done with it. If you have to do this on stage, you have to go to a place that could be very troubling Mm. and very emotionally traumatic. And it's hard to rely on that every day. For Say if you had to do a show two times in one day, how do you remember the memory of your dead cat at one point in the day and have that same effect the second time if you're relying Mm. solely on that. Stanislavski himself was actually toying with this until one of his students tried to commit suicide and then wanted to move away from that entirely. So he dropped that. Strasbourg, not a chance. So a lot of Hollywood draws from this kind of idea of bringing yourself and your own emotional experiences into acting. And this created this public fascination of the actor and the character being fused and like being unable to distinguish one from the other. So think Marlon Brando in A Streetcar Named Desire or The Godfather. Mm -hmm. Suddenly you had this public fascination with actors that then when they met them in real life, they were confounded to find out that they weren't actually like the characters they were portraying. So film really changed everything for this profession. And we have this, we have to go into this unofficial, but very real obsession that actors have with staying in character, even when they're not in a scene. Jared Leto. (laughs) Jared Leto has been the most popular topic regarding this, but there's also Leonardo DiCaprio, Christian Bale, Mm. uh, Heath Ledger, the late great Heath Ledger. These were all actors who who used this kind of research and immersion 
because they believed it would give them the best performance. Interestingly enough, Strasberg never taught this. Oh, this really? is not a thing of the method at all. He actually described that actors who have to stay in character do so out of anxiety. They do so because they think that if they stay into that state all the time, then they never have to rely on moving in and out of it in order to deliver the best performance. So he sees it as a crutch. Oh, they've got your number, Jared. Exactly. When people talk about method acting, most of the time they are talking about the thing that has become this publicity stunt and this kind of self-obsessive thing that is resulted from an industry that makes a lot of money and puts people under immense pressure. So they feel like they have to do this Mm. because they have to deliver this great performance and actually become the character and be immersed in it. Wow, I had no idea. Oh yeah. Recently, uh, the actor Mads Mikkelsen, he kind of shat on this sort Mm. of style. Because his reasoning was, well, what if the performance is shit and you did all of that work anyways, then what was the point of all of that? Jared Leto. Why did you treat people, why did you act like an asshole? Why did you you put in all that physicality? Why did you waste everybody's time? Mm. Like, yeah, Jared Leto himself would take long breaks because in the recent film Morbius, he had a terminal condition and so he spent like 80 minutes in the bathroom because he thought he was mimicking the physicality of somebody who was going through that and on set while everybody was waiting on him. It's It was a huge problem. There's also, if you're familiar with the actor William H. Macy, he studies uh, David Mamet's acting method of practical aesthetics, which I'd love to go into, but basically what he says is, there's a thing that actors do called unnecessary work where they focus too hard on research and all the things about a character that don't matter when they've already gotten the role. His example was, okay, so I'm playing the Pope. What would the Pope do? How would the Pope walk? How would the Pope spend his day? That doesn't matter. You're already the Pope. You've got the job. So don't worry about what how it should be done. Hmm. All right. So... He finds that a lot of that kind of immersion is wasted effort that could be put into a performance rather than draw and suck away all this energy. And that goes into, well, what the fuck is Nicolas Cage doing in his performance? Good question. (laughs) And where does he land on this spectrum of acting? So he... I think the most purest quote I've ever heard from Nicolas Cage that kind of describes his whole approach to the medium is that he said, I just love acting and I hope that there will be more encouragement for movies where we can experiment and fast forward into the future of acting. Nicolas Cage was a student of the method as well as like countless of other Hollywood celebrities. Like unless they started in theater, I don't know a single actor who doesn't ascribe to Strasberg's method. But he kind of started to become disinterested in that idea of immersion, of falling so completely into the character that you fall into naturalism where there's nowhere else for acting to go once it's reached that point. Mm -hmm. It's a dead end. So he started experimenting after, I believe, about 1987 when he created the film Vampire's Kiss he wanted to try a more experimental form of acting that he eventually called Nouveau Shamanic, 
It's an acting style that he named after he read a book by a professor named Brian Bates that wrote The Way of the Actor. And that book talks about how the medicine men and tribal shamans of ancient history were really just actors because what they would do is they would act out whatever the issues were with the villagers at the time and they would try to find answers or use like going into a trance state in order to find an imaginative way to reflect the concerns of the entire community Mm. so he read about that and identified with it so heavily that he saw it as taking somebody's internal concerns or fears and externalizing them in so big of a way or so imaginative of a way that it became this sort of expressionist style of acting where he would draw from the power of imagination in order to physicalize these large actions that are not random, despite what people might think, (laughs) but are very specific and calculated. And whereas some people would say, oh, that doesn't feel naturalistic. To him, sometimes seeing the way that he does things over the top, in his mind, that embodies the inner truth of a character more than, say, somebody who might be toning it down would appear to be. So for a lot of actors, what you're saying is naturalism is kind of the end goal. Yes. But for Nick Cage, he's trying to go beyond that in kind of a postmodernist way of acting. Very much so. He's he's trying to be, I think I already said it, but he is akin to expressionism, what a lot of actors are to modernism, I guess, is that they're trying to be truthful and honest and grounded emotions or realistic circumstances. But everybody is kind of, people are different. And what might be natural might be only uh, pandering to a majority or a social contract, whereas Nicolas Cage Mm. is wanting to, to find a way to physicalize what might be more true than what most actors would be inclined to show uh, out of a fear of failure and so the the 1988 film vampire's kiss you just see him going absolutely crazy with his vocality and his physicality because he's just wanting to see what would happen yeah um and he's wanting to try to break out of that mold and i think you actually had found a quote yeah there's this great quote from ethan hawk uh who says in 2013 that Nick Cage is the only actor since Marlon Brando that's actually done anything new with the art. Um, And he credits him for taking away this obsession with naturalism um, and says that's a kind of style of acting, I imagine, that was popular with the old troubadours. So it's kind of postmodern and Mm -hmm. also kind of harking back to old styles of acting that were a little bit more expressive and exaggerated. Exactly. And it was weird. I was actually listening to a podcast where Pedro Pascal, Nicolas Cage's latest co-star, said the exact same thing, that Nicolas Cage to him is what Brando was to so many actors. Because Brando, I mean... Marlon Brando was seen as the first, like, obsession with method acting, Mm quote-unquote, which is an unofficial thing. It's not taught by any teachers, but it's still very real, and we all know what it is when we talk about it. Right. So it's... The film really exacerbated the reach of acting and people's perception and understanding of it, and it's probably changed the style more than any other period in history. 
I think it's really fascinating because we think of acting a lot of the time as just this thing that actors do. And it's, it's not like an art. We aren't mm-hmm. thinking about it in an evolutionary way. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Nick Cage is really challenging us to look at acting as an art, as a thing with an evolution that can change and take on new forms. Um, And I think that's maybe why he's kind of divisive, Mm -hmm. is that not everyone is uh, behind that or understands that. A lot of people don't find his portrayals sometimes to be believable, because it isn't something that they can relate to, or it's choices that they wouldn't make themselves. But in Nicolas Cage's perspective, the difference between good and bad acting is basically just a matter of entertainment. He said that um, in film acting, you can do things that seem erratic or out of touch or not in sync, but it's a valid stylization as long as you anchor it within the context of the character and situation. In his works, I mean, people, I think, have assumed that Nicolas Cage is a little bit out of control and isn't reined in when he's on a set, similar to how maybe Jared Leto or Jim Carrey have been reported to act on set. But actually, he says that he always wants to do something in the style of the director and what the director is looking for. And if they rein him back or don't want him to do something, he doesn't do it. So what you end up seeing in a film is usually what the director is okay with. Um, It wasn't a matter of him being difficult or being hard to work with. Well, speaking of films uh, with... Uh, Can we run down the list of what we saw? Right, yeah. So we um, did quite the deep dive. Uh, Do you want to talk about the ones that we have both have seen? Yeah, I'll just tick them off real quick and then we can go deeper in. Let's go. We both watched Pig Into the Spider-Verse, even though he's just a little bit part in that. Uh, (laughs) Mandy, (laughs) Vampire's Kiss, the famous face-off. The unbearable weight of massive talent, and of course, national treasure. Uh, I had a little bit more spare time. We were both finishing up our semesters, but I found the time to squeeze in The Wicker Man, uh, Con Air, Gone in 60 Seconds. I've also seen Moonstruck, Kick Ass, G Force, Ghost Rider, Next, and Raising Arizona. And that's like not even scratching the surface of the extent of this guy's career. Yeah, you said something like 90 titles he's been in so far? So far, yeah. The Community episode where they talk about Nicolas Cage, they only list him as having done 70. That was like less than a decade ago. So he's been working. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) He, He didn't go anywhere. I guess to start this off, what have you found to be the most compelling or your favorite performance out of Nicolas Cage movies that you've seen? So I think the most interesting experience I had watching a Cage film was seeing Pig, Mm -hmm. um, because I think it was a really big contrast to just his reputation as being a really over-the-top actor, Mm -hmm. being like really wild and crazy. And his performance as Rob Feld in Pig is so subtle and so restrained. He is so quiet, and you just feel like he's embodying this trauma and this grief Mm -hmm. in such a nuanced way. And that was fascinating because it was really not what I was expecting from a Nick Cage performance. I 
would agree that I think I found Rob Fell to be his most compelling performance. And it was this weird mixture of this world that felt very realized, but not necessarily normal. There was still some weird or off aspects to it, but it didn't feel like he was playing what we would describe as naturalism Mm -hmm. still because of those given circumstances and because of he was still feeling experimental and what he was trying to do and the kind of character he was wanting to embody. And it had this overall still very indie kind of feel to it that was definitely a gamble of whether or not it was going to work. When you, when you start the movie, it feels like the Nicolas Cage revenge story akin to John Wick, which has Mm. been very popular and it continually ends up not being that character or that kind of, story and is instead surprisingly heartfelt and wholesome if you contrast that with i think uh mandy which is also a revenge story and exactly the kind of performance you'd expect exactly (laughs) like very big very vocal very over the top uh you know dueling with chainsaws um it's quite a trippy movie I love when we were watching that movie, I was reading the Wikipedia plot summary and it mentioned a demon biker gang that lives off of human blood and LSD. And I, I said, that was the coolest sentence I think I've ever read. <laughs> um, yeah, it's this huge, colorful, exp- like slow burn, heavy metal opera kind of action film for Nick Cage to plug himself into. And it's just so fun. And speaking of, like, a method of acting, you said he studied, like, hard metal vocals he for did. a scene where he's screaming? He did. Nick Cage likes to, he, uh, in addition to Nouveau Shamanic, he also has this style that he calls Western Kabuki, which Kabuki is an acting style that focuses on poses and physicality and vocal strength and breathing. And so that's why you will often hear him say things in a modulated pitch or with weird, hard inflection or emphasis. And so in works like Mandy or Vampire's Kiss, what he'll often do is he'll look at old movies or art styles and then draw inspiration or power from that in order to channel into the emotions of the characters that he plays. So in Mandy, there's a scene where he is in his underwear and a tiger t-shirt where he just downs a whole bottle of vodka and just starts screaming, screaming this heavy metal style scream as he's crying on the toilet in Mm -hmm. grief. And it's so captivating. And I think they reported on set that everyone just kept laughing when he did takes like that. I don't get that when when I watch the movie. It feels very over the top, but it feels like it's emblematic of this character and the emotions that he's going through. Yeah, kind of, I think, as you were describing when you were talking about his style, not naturalism of, like, what you might actually see a everyday person expressing, but is very true to the character mm. and the feelings that are going through this man's life in the circumstances of the film. So there are actors that I like, like um, Adam West and Jeff Goldblum. These are personalities that are usually hired for their public perception. 
as being kind of cartoonish or very genuine. And I think there's an assumption that Nicolas Cage is also like that and that he's very self-aware, tongue-in-cheek when he comes to do these performances. I don't believe that's the case. Like, according to him, he said that he tries to never be ironic He's not doing something over the top to be ironic. He's genuinely doing it because he believes it's a fun and imaginative way of being in touch with the character. And over like he he will do ridiculous things, but not just for the sake of being ridiculous. He wants to have fun and he wants to fall in love with acting every time he goes into a job or a performance. Yeah. And obviously with films like The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, he is portraying a version of himself as Nicolas Cage, the actor, who is this over-the-top, this meme gold kind of personality. When he's uh, routinely expressed that he wants to be mysterious, like the classic mm -hmm. stars of Hollywood, but he can't have that because of the internet and how <laughs> like personal lives just aren't a thing anymore. Uh, because of the ease of access yeah. of information. And uh, if you haven't seen The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, it is like such an earnest movie. <laughs> it is so feel good. Uh, despite, you know, having like gang warfare in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I It was definitely one of the first comedies that I've seen in a movie theater in a long time. Mm -hmm. I, I will say that there is a lot of earnestness in the film. There is also a level of cynicism that they feel like they have to add certain sections or certain plot lines in in order for the movie to sell at all, because that's what they were wanting from it. And it's it. a commentary on that at the same time, yeah. though. They're mentioning throughout the film as the characters of the actors mm -hmm. are writing uh, a, a film, a script, that in order to sell their speculative script there has to be a kidnapping and then of course obviously there's a kidnapping in the movie as well right and there there is a whole era of cage's career where he was kind of plugged into these blockbusters action film th this is what built his persona mm -hmm. as nicholas cage such as like obviously national treasure which is a very competent movie i found on mm -hmm. rewatching. Con Air, Gone in 60 Seconds. Face Off. Next. Yeah. Um, that felt very much like him wanting to be plugged in as a leading man that sells tickets and an action star. And they kept wanting him to do this. And he would keep doing his own thing that felt just a little bit off. There's a great scene in Gone in 60 Seconds where he plays a car thief. And it's pretty much for the most part, just about stealing cars. But he needed, he requested that a scene where he just listens to the song Lowrider by War. And it's just watching Nicolas Cage vibe and groove to that <laughs> for about a minute. And it's weirdly one of the more badass scenes in the entire film, in my opinion. I think uh, what makes some movies like Face Off last in their impact mm -hmm. is that he's made these choices in his acting. Right. I think Face Off would be a movie nobody talks about anymore if it weren't for Nick Cage and like what he does with it. I would absolutely agree with that. He he said that he definitely was an actor who 
was getting ridicule, I think, at the time. But because he's made such a strong commitment to that style, his films now in an internet and ironic slash post-ironic age of appreciation, he's he's described his films as having sort of a renaissance and a resurgence right now. Mm. And so he really hopes that he can get back to doing the kind of roles that he liked doing before, but he's glad that, like, the choices that he made decades ago are now giving people enjoyment now. I feel like a lot of the animosity that came his way came from films like The Wicker Man, mm -hmm. which they say he acts badly in, but he's not... I don't see who else you can get to do that role and make it work. Right. If you know what I mean. He's going to do the crazy stuff and people don't emotionally identify with that, so they chalk it up as a bad performance. But in my argument, there are characters like um, Peter Liu in Vampire's <laughs> Kiss, where if you got anybody else, it wouldn't have been as interesting a performance and would have been completely unsalvageable as a study or as a piece of media mm -hmm. in general. Yeah. I think it's fair to say that... Uh... He has made some bad movies. Uh -huh. I don't know that that translates into him being a bad actor. Right. Like The Wicker Man, for example, or, uh, you know, we have different opinions on Vampire's Kiss. Right. But his acting is not the thing that makes the movie bad. Okay. His acting is definitely its own piece of, like art mm. even in these movies that might be brought down by script or you know uh, in the case of wicker man kind of some ridiculous ideas right the i i will say that gone in 60 seconds car movies aren't usually my thing and i found the movie overall to be a little boring unless he was on screen mm. doing something that mm -hmm. felt more akin to his style and his passion yeah and I know that, like, with movies like Ghost Rider, which are from the less popular era of superhero movies before it was Marvel Studios and the MCU, that he was obsessed with, like, monster movies and wanting to have that over-the-top physicality while also being leather jacket-wearing biker sort of stuntman action lead that everybody loves, but then he's like, no, now I want to be, like, working for the devil and just screaming my head off as my skull lights on fire. <laughs> <sighs> and it's just so much fun. So, overall, you think Nicolas Cage lands on the good side of acting rather than the bad side of acting? Oh, here it is, the big question. Yeah. That's a hard question to answer. I don't think he lands on the bad side of acting. And if you had asked me this before we started this deep dive, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have given you the same answer. But I feel like my eyes have been opened. Yeah. I like get what he's going for now. And I really dig it. I don't know if he's good in the sense of traditional acting. Mm -hmm. But I really like that he's pushing the boundaries of what acting is, like ontologically what acting means, mm -hmm. what it means to act. And I just used the word ontological on a podcast. 
Hell yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I like what he's doing. I think it's really interesting. I will say I find him immensely entertaining. And I also agree that I don't, I think that he's a good actor and that what he's doing actually works for him. I will say that with acting and with, with such a superficial profession as acting, it all really depends on all the dominoes lining up in exactly mm. the right way. I think if other people tried to do this, it wouldn't come across as the same way. It's what we were talking about before of bringing the actor to the character. And so if it wasn't Nicolas Cage, nephew of Francis Ford Coppola, and having this exact weird combination of a career and debts and fascination with old media and treasure hunting and mm -hmm. like two-headed animals, <laughs> it wouldn't deliver the same impact in a setting like Hollywood. For example, Pedro Pascal, he said that in a recent film that he did, Wonder Woman 1984, he played a character and said that he channeled Nicolas Cage's performance in Vampire's Kiss. Oh, wow. I've seen that movie. That is not what I got at all. Interesting. And when he says it, I see similarities, but I don't see... It's a completely different animal and a completely different appearance and setting and director and actor, ultimately. Yeah. So while I will agree with you that Nicolas Cage is a good actor... I will say that his acting methods feel very tailored to a public perception and an industry and a world where it praises naturalism, but you also have this kind of, this outlier internet audience that mm -hmm. just eats this kind of thing up and has an appreciation yeah. for the weird or the misfit toys of the movie world. Maybe uh, Nick Cage needs to write that book on nouveau shamanism. He says he'll write it someday. Maybe that's what we need. But I have my own doubts of whether <laughs> he's actually going to do that because it just feels so extraneous and so imaginative that I think if you try to write it down the way Stanislavski wrote down it simply these could things, not be captured. it's going to be something different mm. at the very least. And we're never going to get an actor like him ever again. Yeah. Um, so yeah, overall, did you enjoy this? Have a good time? Yeah, I really did. Yeah. I really liked Mandy. I really liked Pig. Into the Spider-Verse is great for multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, Face-Off was so much fun. We had a ton of fun during Face-Off. So Off. much fun. If you haven't seen that movie, I know it gets a rep for being ridiculous, and that's true. It's true. But it is actually such a competent action movie. It is so fun. I would say if you're wanting to see Nicolas Cage shine in supporting roles, him playing as Speckles the Mole in Disney's G-Force, a movie about guinea pig super agents, secret agents. Of course. <laughs> he like the the interviews of him going like like I can't play a guinea pig because I don't respond to that at all. But I need to play an animal with a long tail that says, I dare you to pick me up. Wow. All right. You so, want to do personal plugs? Absolutely. If you enjoyed this and you want to follow me on Instagram or Letterboxd, you can find me on Instagram as 
Instagram42, that's at I-N-S-T-A-G-R-A-H-A-M underscore 42. And I am also on Letterboxd as Trundle the Great. That is T-R-U-N-D-L-E-T-H-E-G-R-8. And what about you? I'm on Instagram at Traveling Mitten and Girl. And I am on Letterboxd at R-A-E-W-O-O-D. That is Ray Wood. Alrighty. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you around. Bye.